Welcome to the Bruce Bright Breakdown. My name is Dr. Bruce Bright. I'm a Marine fighter pilot, retired, did uh, 28 years in the Marine Corps. Following that, went to school, got my doctorate in psychology, and now a coach. What we're going to do on the Bruce Bright Breakdown is we're going to break down each guest as they bring in their topic. So we're going to get to the Bruce Bright Breakdown each and every week. I hope you join us. It's going to be fun, exciting, informative, and I think you'll love it. So join us right here on the Bruce Bright Breakdown. Welcome to the Bruce Bright Breakdown. Today, uh, I got a very special guest on. He is a friend of mine, uh, and his story is unbelievable. So, um, I mean, truly, when you hear his story, you'll see why I say that. Um, the story's been told, though. So uh, he's at the, you know, the other side of this story, which is, I'm thankful for. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ruin any of the thunder. It's really good thunder. His name's Mr. Steve Sons. Let me tell you how we got there. I do a little flying on the side. Of course, I was a jet pilot in the Marine Corps. And so I do a little flying, and Steve worked at this place that serviced and gassed and fueled the airplanes. It's called an FBO, a fixed-based operator in Birmingham, Alabama. And one day he came up to me and said, hey, I want to fly. And, you know, instead of doing this desk job, I want to fly. I want to put fuel in them. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from lots of young folks like, hey, Bruce, I want to fly. I don't want to do what I'm doing. I don't want to work on them or fuel them. In fact, my book, there's a real good story about a young man did the same thing. And I said, yeah. Sounds good to me, but there's some things you got to do. And those things are study. And then you got to go get some some ratings. Well, Steve quit his job and took his savings and went and got all the ratings he needed all the way through commercial pilot. Uh, so I'm happy to say today, and I told him, I said, if you get them, I'll fly you in my right seat. I fly almost everything single pilot, which means my co-pilot seat is empty. And I told him, I said, if you, you get the ratings, I'll, I'll be glad to let you jump in there anytime I'm going somewhere. So we've probably flown together 10 or 15, 20 times, something like that. And the way I got to this story was we were sitting in this airplane together with headphones on, so nobody can hear what we're saying. We might even be alone, I'm not sure. And it's time for me to give blood. So I give blood every whatever it is, 90 days or whatever the Red Cross tells me to do. And I donate just regular blood. And I just look over and said, hey, man, do you, do you give blood? And he said, nah, I don't, I don't give blood right now. And uh, he said, I can't. Now, I've been in the military, and the Red Cross is very picky about traveling, they're tricked about some diseases and some things like that. And so I just kind of stopped it there because it's none of my business. And I said, all right, well, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm giving this afternoon. And then he opened up and he told me the story that you're about to hear. And I was, damn, I was floored. So I can tell you now he's happily married, got a beautiful family. He is working at Atlantic also, making some money, but he's also flying. He will eventually be a full-time pilot and it won't be long. He just needs to build some hours. Uh, but I'm thrilled to, to know that Steve has done what he's done. He's a powerful man to get where he's at when you hear this story. So, Steve, welcome to the show, and and uh, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. So here's my format. I always do this. I just want you to go back as far as you're willing to go and tell them your story. Cool. So uh, probably I say I was 15 years old, Bruce, when I, I really started down a path that I can look at today and know that it was – probably the roughest road I could have picked of all the roads when you're 15. You know, every decision you make is pretty pivotal as far as your friends and all these things that play into what you're going to do long term in your future. And uh, my dad passed away when I was 15. You know, when you're that age, friends and decisions and all that I just mentioned are kind of based off inputs of the people around you. And your dad is a huge one. Yeah. You know, he's the superhero. All that kind of stuff it was my friend. It was my dad. And when that figure left my life, 
I was kind of left to my own devices. And at 15, I had no idea what to do about anything. I didn't even know how to shave, really. Mom, mom was still in the home. She was. And yeah. mom was mom was great. Mom was very involved. And, and it took a toll on her, too. I mean, it's her husband. Yeah, yeah. And mom's a mom. I mean, she's she's not a man. She's a woman. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. And now she's playing both roles, at least temporarily. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's hard for her to do. So when she has to fill in on that, that male role model in my life, it took away from the female that I needed as a mom to, you know, nurture or whatever that may be. Um, I didn't have that. And so it's just a tough journey for her too. But how many siblings? I have just one brother, younger brother. That was it. So it was, it was the, so you were 15 when your dad passed and he was, he was 14, 14 and 15, both young, both young kids. Okay. Yeah. Really young. So, so what happened at 15 when, after your dad passed? So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to do with life, what life looks like, what I'm supposed to be, you know, just get acceptance from somewhere and start hanging out with, you know, kind of the knucklehead kids and, and in my mind kind of labeled them as the cool kids. That's who I want to be around. They're they're They get the attention, they get the laughs, they get the looks. So that's who I want to be around. And those kids were doing things that I didn't know at the time were going to probably put me in a position to ruin my life for a better part of two decades. What kind of things were these kids doing? Smoking cigarettes, smoking weed, drinking on the weekends, little things. At 15. At 15. Yeah, yeah. So not really little at 15. Yeah, and and they're they're in a position at their age where you don't really know long term how it's going to affect you. Because I had kind of played a little bit, you know. And I think the first time I'd used used marijuana, I was 12 years old. I was on Halloween, and just kind of a quote harmless thing. So I thought, but that's when I really, if I look back, I see the pattern of surrounding myself with the wrong people really started. So when that happened with my dad at 15. I didn't realize, I didn't understand what that would do to a 15-year-old boy and, and what that took away from me. So I'm around these people, you know, that go, getting into school that following that following year, just making stupid choices, partying on the weekend. My mom's dealing with the trauma of losing her husband. So she's kind of like, yeah, go do your thing, make good choices. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, I will. Yeah, mom. For a 15-year-old, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's go make good choices. So I started drinking a lot, coming home, smoking. Like I said, smoking pot on the weekends, it, it kind of trickled over into the week. At, on the weeknights, my grades started tanking, and it just it went from there. That only lasted about a year and a half or two years till I really started kind of dabbling in cocaine a little bit. What what age did the cocaine start? I think probably 17 or 18. And you're still in high school. Yeah, junior, senior year. I started okay. dabbling in that just a little bit because – it wasn't like I'm looking for it. It was it was still fun. It was available. It, yeah, exactly. It was, I mean, I know for me, <laughs> the people I were around, I went to private school. So for a lot of the people, their parents worked very hard for what they had. The kids were spoiled, too. And I was no different. How about Steve? Okay, you were spoiled, too. Yeah, you know, and got a truck when I was, got a nice new truck when I was 16. How'd you pay for it? My mom paid. Okay. You know, it's what, it was the thing you did just buy your kid a new car when they turned 16. I'm not going to do that. That's not the thing we did. Exactly. But that, that was what the way it was handed to me was, hey, I'd never had a job before except maybe throwing some sod in the summertime at my friend's dad's sure. nursery. But I didn't have to work for anything. So there's no real perspective on responsibility still at that point. And uh, again, around people making the wrong choices. What city were you in? Florence, a little Florence, small town. Alabama. Yeah, right across the river from Muscle Shoals, big, big music city. And it's a small town and, you know, a lot of free time, not a lot to do. A lot of free time and a little bit of money. Yeah, which is a problem. 
So when you're around people making stupid choices, it's it's easy to get caught up in it. You don't realize, at least I did it at that point, how how deep I had already gotten. Yeah. Did you graduate from high school? I did. I graduated from high school, and there's a local university up there, University of North Alabama. Started college there, spent a couple years there. Uh, great fraternity, great group of friends. Some of them I still talk to. And mom got sick of paying for me screwing up. Got sick of paying for me drinking all weekend and into the morning, Monday morning, watching people walk to class drunk from the weekend with a beer in my hand, you know. So you live on campus or live at home? I lived at home, but my mom had moved out. Really nice house in a cool neighborhood. Hey, rent free. How about you try this? Save us all some money. I don't have to pay your rent. Just live at this house. She had gotten married, moved out to, to the river with a guy she had married. Still local. She's, she's close. Uh, yeah, 15 minutes. Okay, drive. so let me get this right. You're uh, 18, 19 year old. You're living in your family home now because it, she's moved away into a different home. Yeah. Um, you have enough money that you're going to college and you've also got beer money and Coke money. Yeah, and every other, every other kind of money. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that, that lasted about two years and she said, that's enough. I'm not paying for, for this anymore. Did she say, I'm not paying for drugs or I'm not paying for bad grades? All of it. Because she, she, she could read the writing on the wall at, at that point. She would come to the house and it was destroyed. There was, whether it was paraphernalia or beer cans or weed pipes. Were you in the house by yourself or did you have roommates? I, so I ended up getting some roommates, which were some of my fraternity brothers, which having a big house with a pool and a nice neighborhood with three fraternity brothers living there became a party. It was, like was Animal House. It was exactly like Animal House to where I found out there was a law in our city that if you get noise complaints six times on the seventh time, the homeowner has to go to jail. So did you get seven? I did. And luckily I was gone. Okay. <laughs> luckily I left about three o'clock that morning chasing okay. a girl. And so my roommate went to jail because okay. of that. So that was yeah, that was the story of our life for two years was just a pure party. Okay. So let me let me stop you here because if there are any parents that are listening, there's a great story right now just for parents. And that is make your kids work for what they get. Make them appreciate what they get. I'm going to tell you now, I know of two others. I buried them both. That the story you've told so far is almost identical with what they did. They're both in the grave at 30 years old. So um, I'm just telling you, parents, if you're out there and you're listening, you can hear what Steve said as he was given everything. He had money and he had time and then he had a house, a new house with a pool. Um, and it all ended up bad. So, OK, what happens next? So, again, I had no no realm of responsibility and what that looked like. So for a 19, 20 year old kid, I'm just trying to sort through what's next. So I'm working odds and ends jobs. Yeah, school. yeah, I, yeah school's over with. I don't know what's next. Um, again, this this girl I had been been with, um, off and on in college. Her and I are kind of together a little bit. I'm trying to sort out what's going to happen with her working odds and ends jobs, and some of the folks I was I had become quote friends with throughout the last couple of years of my life, kind of picked up from weed, coke, you know, a few pain pills here and there, to a steady stream of pain pills, you know, anti anxiety meds, Xanax, things like that. But any any sort of pill you can imagine. How are you paying for this now? Mom shut you off. So, like I said, I was I was working some odds and ends jobs. Okay. Just um, I was living with a friend of mine, sleeping on his couch. So, so you moved out of the big house. Yeah, moved out of the house. She said that's enough. Like I said, that noise complaint was kind of the biggie for us. She was like, "All right, no more, no more. You're you're not you're you're not showing me what I need to see to know you're in a healthy place." And I don't think I can contribute to this anymore. Okay. So, so your money train ended and your place to live ended. Yeah. So I had to get a job. 
got to get a job somehow to pay for whatever habit it was, whatever food I wanted to eat, you know, and I always knew I had a place at mom's and that was, that's healthy in a way, but it was bad because for me, I knew I could burn every bridge I needed to get what I wanted. And at the end of the day, if I needed somewhere to stay or needed something, hey, mom, uh, you know, so that was, that did, was, did you do that occasionally? Occasionally, yeah, all the time, okay. all the time, because as my addiction progressed, that burning bridges and that dead end and into that road comes constantly. Yeah. You're constantly in that situation where I got to figure out something. So. I got I to gotta get the money to get the drugs and you're burning bridges because you're stealing or yeah. whatever you're doing. And in a small town, there's only so many bridges, which eventually winds why we wound up in Birmingham. My, my, my ex-wife and I wound up in Birmingham. It's just because we had run through about everything we could in Florence. Yeah. You know, everybody we could, everybody we knew, we owed them all money. They were, they're ready for the money. And today, you know, yesterday they wanted their money. And so, uh, so that was kind of the progression of things. It was just once I got out of school, it, my addiction really picked up because I had a in between jobs. Like I said, any job, whether it was construction, built piers on the river up there was a big business. You were doing a bunch of manual labor. It sounds yeah, like. whatever it was, which I enjoyed it. It wasn't bad. It was hot. And, you know, it was kind of tough at times, but I, I can't say I hated it, but. Well, there's nothing wrong with manual labor. We no, need, not at we all. Docs, we need docs. That's a, that's a real profession, but yeah. not if you're doing it just to buy drugs. Exactly. And then you lose that job because you don't show up. Then you go get another. And it's just a constant cycle. Mm -hmm. And the problem was it was for my, my, my mom's husband at the time. And so. You're working for him? I'm working for him. And I was stealing from him on a constant basis. Yeah. And, and did he know it? I think he, he got hip to it pretty quick after yeah. about six or eight months. And he kind of said, hey, I, I think something's up, you know. Everybody knows it. Yeah, everybody The, the knows drug it. addict don't think you know it. But, I mean, I, I have family members where you've got to watch your purse. If you're if you're at a family reunion, all the women, you got to keep your purse on your shoulder because she'll take your money out of your purse. Yeah. Now, men's got usually built, you know, my billfold's in my back pocket, so she's not grabbing that. But she'll go through a purse in a minute and take everything you've got and then deny it if you say something about it. Yeah, so, it. yeah, everybody, yeah, help you look for it. Every, yeah. And by the way, I've, at least the drug addicts that I worked with in my coaching business and the ones that I was closer to, they're damn savvy. They, they know how to get what they want. I told you a story, I think, in the plane. I got a phone call one day from a daughter of a close friend. And she said, Dr. Bright, my husband and I were really in bad shape. And we just need to get, um, I think she, it was either her power bill or something. You know, the kids are going to be cold. And my dumb ass, she asked for $200. I gave her 500 And I said, I want to make this better for you. I mean, I don't, I don't want, in my mind, I'm, I'm buying power so a child's not cold. Yeah biggest sucker. She screwed me right over. So I finally, she called me back. Uh, it was probably two days later, same story. Even, it was even bigger extreme now. And I said, you know what, let me get back with you. So I called her mother and she said, Bruce, do not give her any money. She's buying drugs. And I felt like a big dumbass because, you know, I, I thought I was being so kind and helpful to help her children get heat for the home. I'm buying drugs and I'm, it's not weed. It's hardcore drugs. So she worked me over like a cheap suit. Yeah. Uh, and I fell right for it. Not the second time. So, okay. So you're, you're now, you're out, you're working on your own, you're doing drugs. And what, what happens next? You come to Birmingham next? So, yeah, there was, there was a couple of years of that round and round. We ended up finding a doctor that was, uh, that was in Huntsville, which is about an hour drive from where we lived and getting some, you know, it was an endless supply of, of pills pretty much, whether it was, you know, anti-anxiety meds, um, ADHD medication, 
like medication. Did he give you whatever you want? Absolutely. Like you could literally walk into this doctor and he would have, it was a, a small room about half the size of this. He would sit down in a chair, pull out a prescription pad and wait for you to tell him a story that I had been briefed on by a friend of mine that put me in touch with this doctor that myself and the person I was with would pay $500 cash. It's a girl's front desk. He'll see you in a few minutes. You had to call and make an appointment, of course, but $500 each. So it was a thousand bucks and he'll see you in a few minutes. We sat down for about an hour because it was a lot of people in that lobby, obviously. Yeah. And everybody lined up getting their drugs. Yep. And he walks in the door, sits down with a, with a prescription pad, says, tell me what's going on. And that was my cue on the story I'd been told I needed to tell about medication that we had been taking previously. Hey, which is what you want him to give you. Exactly. That's the cue. Hey, when you want what you want, you better have it together because that's when he says this, it's what he's asking you. And that's what we did. Told him everything he wanted and he wrote it. And how long did that relationship last with that doctor? Jeez, probably a year and a half. Till he where's that doctor today? Don't mention the name, but where's the doctor? Federal prison. He's in prison. Yep. Federal prison. Thank the Lord. Yeah, seriously. Because it was, it was endless. Day in, day oh, out. People was, all day, every day. And the trick was... For, for that amount of prescription medication, um, the majority of states have, a, have a, a tracking system that the DEA uses to say, okay, this guy's given this much out to this person. You can't get this much within so many days. So it's on every prescription. Is that how they busted him? Well, I'm not sure how they busted him other than the fact that the pharmacy that he sends all his patients to was, was rated. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when the pressure got put on them, that's kind of where his pressure came to or came from, because he said, OK, this pharmacy, you guys live in Florence. Yeah. So this pharmacy, probably the most you know economical pharmacy to go get this medication, which, again, I had been briefed on was the fact that, hey, go to this one. Don't go to another one. This is the one you want to go to. Same deal. Walk in 250 bucks cash. Here you go. Hand you five thousand dollars worth of pills. Well, street value roughly Mm -hmm. about five grand worth of pills and you could go every month so that's really that and you know a few months later after we had started doing that my grandmother had passed away and um since my dad had died (laughs) since my dad bruce bruce just found the 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 sentencing for him 9.5 million that's him yeah that's great that's him yeah yeah and uh so my grandmother passed away. My, since my dad had died when we were younger, she had left uh, her daughter, my dad's sister, my aunt, and my brother and I some money. Mine worked out to about 85 grand, something like that. What was, you know, my, my cut of what was split between my brother and I made it six months, blew through every, every bit of it. How much $86,000 in six months on drugs. And so that really, when it was like one day I had the money and the next day I woke up and I didn't have any. Are you married in the story um, not yet. Okay. No, not yet. Okay. So I, I'm not married to my first wife yet. So who gave you the money? Was it your, uh, your aunt or your so, mother? Or so your- we went, I, I'll never forget. I was at the beach. This was in July of, I think 2007, maybe 2000. No, it was, it was past that. We're at the beach and we had a meeting with this attorney that was set on my grandmother's estate. So it was my aunt, my brother, myself, and my mom who was representing my brother since he was a little younger and stripes us a check. 80, like I said, I think it was around $86,000. He go and hands my mom, my brothers, hands me mine. My aunt got hers and we go. So my mom immediately takes us to a friend of ours that had an Edward Jones in Madison. Said, hey, let's invest this. She hands in my brothers. Let's, you know, let's, you know, try to make something positive out of this. 
And he looks at me and I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I got plans. I'll I'll be in touch. I'll be in touch. So I went to the bank and put $86,000 in a checking account, which they kind of asked some questions about anyways, like, you know, maybe a CD or something, maybe a savings account. They said, no, I'm good. I need to get it. I need to get to it. And get to it, I did. And like I said, six months. Six months, it was gone. It was gone. And so my addiction really ramped up between that and having access to that many drugs like we did seeing that doctor. Um, It was just always there. And as much as we wanted, anytime I wanted it, I had it until it's gone. And then I'm like, okay, I've got an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And so my my addiction had progressed from, you know, smaller pain pills, Vicodin, hydrocodone, Lortab, things like that, to Oxycontin, which a lot of people know now is, is, Probably that's the, a big one. Yeah, it's a big it's it's a big deal. And, you know, all the issues with the, the pharmacy companies and the lawsuits and all that, you know, we know now, but it was readily available then. And that was probably my favorite until I started started using heroin. You know, and when, when you become a drug addict early on, it's just you don't realize the depth of how how bad your addiction could be if you don't stop. But kind of towards the back end of it. You'll do whatever it is, methamphetamine, cocaine, crack cocaine. It doesn't, there's, it doesn't matter. It all fills the void. Exactly. It all fills the void. And at that point, you're physically addicted to it. So you have to have it. You're willing to rob, steal, lie, call Bruce and ask for $500 for the power bill. That was, that would be ideal. But again, burnt that bridge just like that. There's bridges like that. People like you out there that have a good heart that say, hey, okay, yeah, for sure. I'll help you out. There's people like that everywhere. Well, that that couple is actually they're they're doing better. They actually went they they went back into rehab. In fact, the foundry, which you'll talk about later, they did that. But they went back into a weekend program or, or something like that, and they actually got back on track. They've kept their children, and they are slowly paying me back because this is what I did. I went and visited them. I mean, I, I know them really well, and I love them like they're my own children. They're they're older than my kids, but that's what I said. It was just me and. And the the lady that called me and her husband, and I, I mean I know them well enough. I've helped them move before. I mean I literally have picked up a couch for them move. I, we're we're friends. I'm really friends with their mother. But I just went and visited them. I said, hey, look guys, this is really unfortunate where you are. I know you're in recovery and you're trying really hard, but you punk me, and I love you, but I want my money back. And if I don't get my money back, I'm gonna beat the shit out of your husband, and I'm gonna do it on a regular basis. I'm gonna call him. I'm gonna visit him frequently, and I'm gonna pummel his ass. They produced twenty five dollars that day, and they paid me twenty five dollars. Maybe I don't know three, four times. And I, I don't. I said I don't care how you pay me back. You're just gonna pay me back. I'm gonna. I want all my money back. Um, and to their credit, they are. And like I said, we don't have a plan. We don't have a contract. I just said if you're gonna pay me, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pummel him. I probably wouldn't, but maybe. Yeah. You know, because it's an addiction. She's not doing it because she's mean. She did it because she's addicted. I mean, just you know this. I mean, you know it better than me. I know she felt terrible about it once she got, you know, she's not getting clean, but she was came down off her high. Uh, she was regretful about it because we're friends, and she knows I love her, I love her husband, and and I love their children. And so I know they felt bad about it, but I just I just said, hey, look, you're gonna pay me back. So far, they have. They they probably they have four hundred dollars to go. <laughs> they made some payments. Yeah. Okay. Let's get back to you. So now, if you've burnt through your eighty-five thousand, eighty-six thousand dollars, what'd you do after that? Man, I had to get on the grind real quick. I had to figure out a way to get some money because I didn't. Again, it was the 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 money was there, the, the drugs were there, and I didn't realize the 
the the scope of my addiction right righteously how bad it was until the money was gone and it was like okay all these people that were around when i had this money all these these dope boys all these just drugs everything i needed that i thought i needed was there all the time 24 7 i woke up with it i went to bed with it like that was the, the life i lived i had to get on the hustle real quick so um did all those friends go away that the ad when you magically it was yeah. the wildest thing money goes away they go away. yeah it was the wildest thing yeah. but somehow i was able you know there's these these really cool things you can buy that clean your pee out you can go you can pass a drug test no matter what you're doing okay and so again called on mom mom i need some help i know somebody that can help you get a job i'm like yeah okay. mom said yeah I love her yeah i said okay okay let me think about it. I'll let you know. Which to a twenty-three. So you called her for money. Mm -hmm. She offered you. I'll help you get a job. Help, yeah, I know somebody okay. to get a job. And so for me, my first thought is, well, I can't pass a drug test. So that's if it's a legit job that's going to give me enough money I need to fund this addiction and put a roof over my head. A you know proverbial little uh, makeshift apartment where I, where I was living at the time. It has to be a, a decent job, and they're going to drug test me, so I'm not going to make that. So I asked her about it, and she said, well. This person that she's friends with, uh, still to this day, actually. Let me call her, you know, see if they got some openings or anything like that. So I'm like, let me know. So I go on the hunt for this stuff. And there was a, a little head shop up in Florence. I rolled up to, he's up 40 bucks, said, hey, I need some herbal cleanse. You know, that's not, that wasn't the name of it, but it was a. They know, what you, they know what you're looking for. Exactly. I said, okay, cool. Went to the back, came back out, 40 bucks cash. I'm set. Is it a tablet? No, it's something you mix in a drink okay. and you drink a couple of bottles of water, you know, leading up to it. Because if you go into, you know, as, as a drug addict, you figure out a way to get what you want and beat drug tests because drug tests are pretty prevalent. The further you get in addiction, because the more trouble you get in and courts and rehabs and jobs and all of them ask for that. So I mean, if you try to clean your system out with water, it's obvious because these tests can test for you know, if you just got a bunch of water in your system and it's clean, it's obvious this guy was trying to flush his system of something. So I knew that was out the table. I'd been around the game long enough to know, okay, I can't just drink a bunch of water and shave my head in case they want to grab hair or something. They'll find hair. So I took that herbal cleanse. Well, I said, I forget the name of it, but I used that um, and drank a bottle of water too the night before and then finished the second dose of it that morning. You know, I went to the bathroom went to take the drug test and I'll never forget at, at waiting at this little testing place up in North Alabama. I had a piece so bad. And the guy was with me that I had conned into getting this job with me. He had fake urine between his legs. And the, the trick is they also test for temperatures on this urine. So you don't, you walk in there with urine that's 20 degrees or whatever, whatever it may be that's abnormal. Different like, temperatures that a body. Yeah, they're like it's weird. So you got to keep it between your legs for it to show up in normal temperature. Tricks of the trade. It right? amazes me how tricks of the trade. How slick drug addicts are. <laughs> yeah. Get by. Okay. Yeah. So I got to take this drug test, and my urine was Shrek green. It was the craziest thing. I've never seen anything like it. I'm like, well, they're gonna know. They never checked up, tested it. I was clean as a whistle. I'm, I'm cooking with grease. Didn't say anything about it being green. Never said a word about it. Okay. Never said a word. So I get I get this job working for a, a drink distributing company up in North Alabama. Okay. Pays pretty good. Um, like you know, good benefits. And I'm thinking I'm I'm a responsible guy. No, I got benefits with a job. Mm -hmm. Like somebody my age has probably had for years. I got insurance, which is ideal for a, a dirty doctor because they'll eat insurance up. 
yeah. they'll they'll wreck insurance. Yeah. But that's a whole other story we can get to. Um, so I, I worked that job for a while, um, starting the warehouse and get me a route uh, going out to stores, stocking the shelves from from stock we would deliver in the mornings. And, you know, trying to keep up with the drug addiction that I had built the years prior to get it to it getting as out of hand as it had gotten. Um, Using a lot. So you got you got a job. You're driving a truck. Yeah. Driving a truck. A a, a good sized truck. Yeah. It's full of drinks. Yeah. Stoned out of my mind. Tore up. And luckily you didn't wreck. Yeah. Luckily. Luckily I didn't. How did that come to an end? So... It's kind of a, 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 a two-piece a, equation there. The first time, uh, what, I, what got me on, on the management's radar was I had gotten to one of my stops and I had, you know, combined some, some uh, really heavy pain medication that's for like people that are terminally Ill, Ill with like cancer. And it's just like, hey, you've got six months to live. We're going to put you on this medication, help with the pain, kind of give you a little euphoria, but just basically ride you on into the end of your life without too much pain. So I was, I had gotten hold of a, a good bit of that and an anti-anxiety medicine. And those two in themselves individually are pretty gnarly to use. You combine them and it's really bad. It, it you know, and you combine them. Absolutely. I love combining them. That was probably my, probably my favorite up until I started using heroin. How, it, let me ask this. How did you function to drive a truck and deliver drinks? That's a great question. That was, that's a great did question. Did you know your name? I knew enough to keep myself out of trouble. I knew what times of day I needed to be the most coherent because we all left from the same place about 5.30 or 6 in the morning. All the bosses, everybody was there. So I need to kind of have my A game on. But when you wake up, if, if you're at that point in addiction, you're sick, you need something. Yeah. So I would get just enough to kind of take the edge off, get me there, get me squared away, you know, check the boxes, you know, make everybody happy. I'm going to do this, this, this. Here's what your rat looks like. I get in the truck and it's, it's game on. It's game on. So I've got to get some pills in my system to kind of mellow me out. You're in that truck by yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so I get to a stop and the way this came to an end, I got to one of my stops, which is a really big grocery store. And they were, you know, had a, had a big sale and everything. And it's always a, a really busy stop for me. And I had done so much that day that I had just nodded out, which means you basically fall asleep. You're the, the, the way, the, those specific drugs react in your body. It suppresses your heartbeat, your blood pressure, your breathing, and you just really, it's almost like you're asleep. You can barely hold your head up. So if you ever see somebody that's just got their eyes closed and their head laid down and they're not very functional, that's usually what's going on. Uh, the majority of drugs do that to you. You know, okay. they call them downers, but a lot of drugs, that's, that's one of the side effects. So you're sitting in the cab of this truck in the parking lot during the day. Yep. And you're out of it. You're Broad day, not it out in the middle of summer, sweating, shirt covered in sweat, the truck off. And the general manager comes out of the store, knocks on the door. Hey, you coming in? Or I've been out there like two hours, you know, and you you can't miss that big old truck. Out it's in the truck, truck, truck. Yeah. He's yeah. like, hey, you coming in to work the store today? And I'm just kind of mumble something. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way. So I go in and it's pretty obvious to him something's bad wrong with me. I didn't smell like booze. So he knew there was something amiss. Yeah. Um, my my boss comes, hey man, what's going on? And I'm, I'm so they saying, called your supervisor. Oh yeah, first phone call was called to my boss, and I'm kind of shambly by the time they, my boss gets there, and he's like, let's go take a drug test. Well, I'm I'm like, okay, what's over with here? What's next for me? You know, and and oddly enough, I went and took the drug test. So he took you from that parking lot to 
straight to a testing facility, the same lab that I had beaten probably a year and a half before. And with the green feet. But this time I didn't have anything to help me. So oddly enough, I took the drug test. I go home and I'd have had a a, a job with a friend of mine um, landscaping the next day because I knew it was over. I'm like, there's no way. But they they tested for everything except the two drugs I had in my system that day. I hit the mother load. I hit the lottery. I'm like, well, this is the best day of my life. I can get this job back making good money. These these benefits, all this good stuff. And I made it probably two weeks when I got he called me. He said he called me about the about the results of the drug screen. Hey, man, you're good. You're clear to come back for work. Just keep an eye on stuff. Let me know if there's anything I need to know about. Oh, good. Yeah, for sure. I get back and made it two weeks. Same thing happened again. Okay. Yep. And he said, okay. Yep. This is it. We're going to pay you for your vacation. We'll meet you out front with your things. It's basically what yeah. they told me. You're lucky you didn't kill yourself or somebody. Though, yeah. Steve. Very. I mean, you know, that's a, you're driving around a hundred thousand truck, that pound truck stoned. Okay. So you lost that job. And now what are we going to do? Cause got, now we're back to no money and no benefits. And yeah. So at that point I had, had it pretty much burned. We're still in Florence. We're still in Florence. This is the tail end of Florence. I pretty much burned every bridge. Um, I'm married at this point. Got a, a very young little kid. Actually, two very young little kids. One was. Wait, 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 wait. Back up a minute. When did you get married? Because we, we, we didn't say that. So in, in between um, Buffalo Rock and, and like I said, I worked there about a year and a half. Distribution company. About a, about a year and a half, two years. I might gotten married right as I'd started there. And we'd found out we were having a kid. And. We said, hey, let's get married and fix this, you know. And we're both in addiction together. Uh, we're, we're both using drugs, the same amount of drugs. If you get one, I get one. You you, you do meet her in rehab? I met her in college, okay. and we were kind of in and out of addiction, making stupid choices all throughout okay. the tail end of college. And we just – she was from down here in Birmingham, and I lived up there. So kind of the same path for her. Family got sick of paying for college a couple of years in. You're, you're coming home. She lived down here. I lived it. I lived up in Florence, which is ideal for me because I could do whatever I wanted. I didn't, again, yeah. no. You were married when you lived there and she lived here? No, not yet. Like okay. I said, that was early on. And leading up to uh, leading up to us getting married, she, she had moved up there when she found out she was pregnant. She said, I'm going to come up here. We're going to make this work, which. So you, she got pregnant. She came up there. You got married then. We got married up in Florence. Yeah, okay. got married up. Both of you doing drugs. Both of us doing drugs. Okay. Yeah, and and she kept it together uh, for a while, and uh, I did <laughs> proverbial keeping it together for for a good little while. Just working a job, you have that income. You don't have to lie, steal, cheat as much. Where did you go after after you went to the, the the soda company? So yeah, after at that point when I got fired from there, I knew. Pretty much every bridge in, in my hometown had been burned. My family had, had approached me several times about getting help. Uh, you know, you have issues. We can't give you money anymore. We don't trust you. We can't trust you around us to not steal our stuff, go through our stuff, whatever. The whole game. would. Absolutely. We, and we did. Yeah, we did for, for a long time. Um, whether it was change out of a change jar, it was a gun, it was you know, whatever it was we that we could take to somebody that had drugs and give to them, buy it, trade it, whatever it was. So end of the distribution, the, the Coke distribution company, I said, well, call your mom. I told my ex-wife at the point, I said, call your mom. Maybe we can move to, to Birmingham because we don't have any any other options up here. We owe too many people money. You know, my, my parents aren't going to help us. My mom's not going to help us at all anymore. She's done. So we moved down here and 
that happened in about a four day period. We made that decision. We were so behind on rent. When you're at the point in our addiction when, that we were, um, you ain't paying rent. You're, you're not drugs. worried about paying rent. You're not wor- worried about keeping the lights on, about feeding two young kids that had, had come out of that relationship. And it was like, okay, we've got to do, we've got to make a move. We got to make a, a drastic change. So we wind up down here. So you moved from Florence to Birmingham. Yeah. Where, where'd you move into? Moved to Trussell and uh, into my to my ex wife's mother's house. And so it was the two of you and two children. And two children, two very little children. Yeah, yeah. and uh, just looked around for maybe a month for jobs, trying to find something to to pay the bills and trying to get figure out a way to get to Huntsville to see this doctor. We don't have money for gas. Her mom. Was What's the doctor in Huntsville going to do? You going to give you drugs? Yeah. Well, how do you have money to buy the drugs if you can't go on money for an apartment? Insurance. My insurance. The trick was my insurance from leaving the the drink distribution company didn't run out for 30 days. So in that meantime, I had to figure out a way to get up there and get get what get our prescription. And the trick was the pharmacy was a long way away. So I got with somebody that told me of a pharmacy here in town that they used and we had, there's a threshold of when you can refill narcotic prescriptions that are schedule one, you know, controlled sure. substances, all that. Mm-hmm. And we had, you get it. There's a one day grace period. And we had done that so much that we were over a month ahead. And so we had to wait like an extra week at this pharmacy, but my insurance had run out. So I had to pile some money up from people that I barely knew around Birmingham that I knew were, you know, in, in addiction as well. Say, Hey, I, I can get you this. Give me the money. I'll go get it. And so we basically piled all this money up from these random folks to get this last prescription at this pharmacy here because I had no insurance at that point. It's like, all right, we got to figure out a way to pay for this because I need it. And we went to the pharmacy, got it. And like a week later, the doctor had gotten gotten busted. The feds kicked the door down, sent her to prison. Yeah, it's like 15, 10, 15 years, something like that. A couple million dollar fine. The norm, those guys. So... We run through run through those in about two weeks. You know, did run, you give these people that? Absolutely not. No, no, no. You just took their money. Yeah, for sure. So why didn't a person like that come after you? They didn't know where we live. I knew, and I knew that. I knew that. Yeah. And and they'll they'll call you and text you and threaten you and send you hit you up on Facebook. You know, you owe me money. Where's my? You know, but you don't worry. You're not worried about that. Yeah. You know, because it's you're sur- about your next fix. Yeah, it's survival at that point because I'm in a new city. I have to have this fix. I have to, I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be deathly sick and I can't be sick. Whatever it takes to not be sick, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So I'm not worried about the same boat, same boat, exact same boat. So we run through those in a couple of weeks. Again, I'm steady going around Birmingham trying to find little odds and ends jobs. Nobody's really willing to hire me. I find a little job waiting tables, um, something like that bartending a little bit at a, a restaurant out there in trustful. And, uh, kind of trying to figure out how, how, I mean, it's a new city. Yeah. Like, I don't know. So you get your, your gang back on where you can get money, buy drugs, get high, do it again. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and they had kind of cracked down on Oxycontin at that point. Um, it was really in the news a lot. They were really picky about who they prescribed it to. And we didn't have this doctor giving it to us. And to get that opiate fix that we were used to, our bodies were used to, and that we wanted slash needed, we tried heroin. I was kind of the, the guinea pig for that. This was the beginning. This is the first time you tried heroin? I had tried just a little in Florence here and there, but it wasn't, you know, I was perfectly content using Oxycontin. Like so that was. Let me, let me make sure the audience knows me. When you say heroin, is that always a needle? 
No, not necessarily. No, but the, to me, that was the best way to use it. That once you use it with a needle, there's no other way to use any drugs. How else do you use heroin? Snort it or you something? You can snort it. You can smoke it. Okay. That's, you know, there's, there's. But the, the main line is to use the fast. That's the, that's the best way to use it. It hits you the fastest, the hardest. And it's, it, there's, there's nothing like it up to that point in my life I'd ever done. So I fell in love yeah. right away. The first time you did it, how the hell did you know how to do it? <laughs> so the, the guy that had, that I was with had said, Hey, man, here's how this works. Here's how you, you cook it. Here's how you tie your arm off. Here's where you put it. Cause you can screw, you can screw yourself up pretty bad. Oh, if you don't you kill yourself. Absolutely. If you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And so, uh, because I have talked to addicts that told me trial and error. Yeah, now, for you're sure. way younger than you. Absolutely. But I'm going to give this a shot, mm -hmm. and no pun intended, but I'm just going to try this to see what happens. Yeah. So you had a guy that gave you a little, little education about it. Yeah, he, he walked me through it, and yeah. I didn't have any trouble. And luckily, I waited till he was with me to do it. And he again, he kind of walked me through it, and he was seasoned. He had been doing it a long time and had no access to his veins left in his arms. Like he had just used so much, his veins were toast in his arms, had tried in his legs for a while, or excuse me, between his toes, down his feet for a while, and just ruined that those, ruined those as well. So he was shooting in his neck, shooting oh. heroin in, in, in his, his neck. neck. Yeah, that's hardcore. It's all hardcore for me, but sure. needle in the neck. Yeah, needle in the neck. So, But again, he was, a, he was an OG, man. He was a veteran. He'd been doing it a long time, and just no thing for him at all. And he yeah. walked me through it. I did it and it was love at first sight. Like I'd never felt anything like that. The euphoria, the, it was just, to me, it was the highlight of my career as a drug addict. Yeah. If that's a good well, I mean, I think that's part of being a drug addict is that, that feeling you get. Yeah. And you're always chasing that first one. And up until that point, that was the journey. But that one, that was the one I'd always, I'd realize that's the one I'm going to chase. That's okay. Go to Birmingham, moving to your mother-in-law's house and start doing heroin. Mm -hmm. All right. And when did your wife join you in that bit? She tried here and there. She was, I think she was a little reluctant with it. Well, you are sticking a needle in your arm. For sure. So for yeah. sure. And I think she was a little reluctant with that. Um, and I kind of hid that a little from her, if you could, mm -hmm. uh, because we were in a, in a pretty rough patch at that point. You know, we had, had lost still cheating. Oddly enough, you do it to the people closest to you first. Who's watching these babies at the time? Because babies are little, right? Yeah, they're they're running around the house. With, you know, if her mom was home, she was watching them. But if not, I mean, I can't I can't tell you how many times I've taken my kids somewhere they shouldn't have been, or I've seen my kids being taken or left at home when they were young for me to go do what I need to do. I mean, you talk about it's a miracle that I'm here, but it's the whole the whole thing's a miracle, really, because they're um, fine today, right? Hundred percent, yeah. yeah. Good, healthy kids. We'll get there. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So uh, so when did you move out of mother-in-law's house in Trustful? Trustful, by the way, is a, a city right outside of Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. So um, I was asked to move out. That was my first stint in rehab. There was a, a tornado that had come through a town outside of Birmingham. And me and my, my drugged-out stupor had thought it would be a good idea to go to, to Publix out there and off Deerfoot and buy a bunch of stuff and run it out just find somebody to give it to i don't know where that came from but i was i woke up with a police officer on the side of the road of, of deerfoot parkway saying hey what's what's up gave me a bunch of sobriety tests could knew something was wrong with me but i somehow passed the sobriety test he called 
you know, said, you got to get somebody to come get you. We'll figure out what to do with this stuff. You got to get a ride. What stuff is he talking about? I had, I bought a bunch of cases of water and a bunch of. Crap. Oh, you're trying to be a good Samaritan. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I was, but I don't know really where, where all that came from because yeah. it was just, again, that was. Were a, you high while you were doing Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I pretty much was high 24 seven. If I was awake, I was high. Okay. Yeah. So I'm out there on the side of Deerfoot Parkway on in, in East Birmingham waiting on somebody to come pick me up so I don't go to jail because I don't want to go to jail because I hadn't been there at that point. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, this is this is a big deal. Some family comes and gets me, brings me home, and they're like, all right, bring takes me to my ex-wife's mother's house and sits me so out. Back to Trussell. Back, yeah, back to Trussell. And they're like, okay, you need help. Um, it was a, a family member that I'm still really close to today. Um, it's like a brother of mine, man, good guy, and always kind of big, big supporter of me, no, no matter what I was doing. Really good dude. Anyways, he is a good dude because you were yeah. worthless at that point. Yeah, hundred percent. He was solid, and he, he still is, man. Really good friend of mine. I think the world of him. And uh, he, it had gotten late in the day at that point. Said, let's take you to get you help. So I come up with some story about can't do that. No, not rehab. Yeah, you know, and I tried, but I realized that at that point I, I was barely coherent to coax up a story to convince somebody. So they weren't having it. So I, the next thing I know, I'm sitting in the parking lot of a little month long rehab north of north of the city we're in right now, north of Birmingham. And he's like, "All right, here we go. We go up into the the treatment program. They're waiting on us. Hey, da da da. What's good? What's your name? Check me in. Everything like that." And I, obviously, I had told them that I have some way to pay for it. This rehab is incredibly expensive. So, and you didn't. I had no way to pay for it. So they're like, well, let us sort that out. He needs to go to a hospital right now. He's in pretty bad shape. This is to the he guy. being you. Being me. This is to the guy was, uh, that, that brought me up there. So he takes me to, to a hospital not far from here. And now, it, last thing I remember is sitting in that intake office at that treatment program. And I wake up four days later and I see you at, a, at the hospital that's maybe 10 miles from here. Yeah. So I had OD. They had, you know, straightened me out. I'm laying in ICU for a couple of days. Woke up wondering where I was. Nobody around me. All I wanted was a cigarette and go to the bathroom. <laughs> that was my focus at that point. So I'm like, okay, I must have done something pretty, pretty gnarly to wind up in this situation. Yeah. Nurse comes in. Hey, Mister So, Mister Sons, how are you? Yeah, I said, "What's? Why am I here? What happened?" So she laid out the process of an overdose and what I'd been doing for a couple of days. And you know, they just to me it seemed like they kind of just sedated me to slow my body down to kind of yeah, keep me alive, get out whatever's in my system and whatever to to cause the the reaction of those drugs to stop. You know, so which I become very familiar with. How many times did you go to rehab? So that was my first. I had tried a couple of different ones. Wait, wait, you're in the hospital. Did you go back to rehab? No. So that I didn't. They weren't going to take me. They had gotten full and they said, look, nah, nah yeah, we're, we're not really willing to help unless you've got wow. about 20 grand that we're willing to, to take from you for a month of stay. Mm -hmm. And so there was a little little halfway house out um, on the other side of Talladega, which is kind of like where the NASCAR track is, East yeah. Alabama, you know. Um, a halfway house, and I'm like, so halfway house, I can work and get me some money. Maybe I can figure out how you can get high while you're in the yeah, house. Yeah, can I can I maintain? Can I get maybe get high a little bit? You know, and the 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 trick is when you're at a hospital like that. I ended up staying for about a week, and when you're in a hospital like that, and they give you these drugs that that counteract the drugs you've been doing, 
it's it completely wipes it out of your system just instantaneously. And if they do it in time, that's how they can save you from an overdose. It just like Narcan, exactly stuff like Narcan, things like that that attach to receptors in your in your brain that counteract what's happening. I'm like, okay, I've I've got a couple of days of sobriety. I'm not going to be as sick as I thought I might be if I stopped. Maybe I can figure out something on the other side of this. What this looks like, maybe not. Who knows? I, I really didn't know because. For so many years of addiction, your mind and your body and everything you do is so focused on getting high. How many years were you an addict? Total 15 years. And that was about, that was about right at about 13, the, the 13, year 13 for me. So went to that halfway house, made it maybe two weeks. Found me. Yeah. Well, no, I, I was actually able to stay for almost a month before they kicked me out. And you made it two weeks before you started doing drugs again. Yeah. Yep. I made it. I got there. It was like 500 bucks and they gave you three meals a day and a couple of AA meetings is, is what I believe it was. And hey, go get a job. Start tomorrow. Beat the bushes. You got to have a job. And so I found me a job and uh, I made it about two weeks at that job and at this halfway house before I snuffed one out of that job. And I said, hey, I, this guy gets high. What's so up? You, so you can definitely spot. Absolutely. Um, mile away. Yeah, yeah. To this day. Yeah, for sure. And so started using a little bit, started getting high. It was just pain pills, that kind of thing. And I, I, I remember the, the fix. I remember the taste. I said, well, that ain't going to touch it. So I know what I need. And started getting a little bit of heroin here and there. And uh, it was maybe once or twice a week when, when the, the opportunity presented itself for me to get what I really wanted. Other than that, it was just pain pills every day. And getting high every day. It's just hair. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, getting high every day for yeah. sure. But but what I was after, it was really hard to get um, out there and hold this job down, keep the people at the halfway house oblivious to what I'm doing, keep you know my, my ex-wife happy, who's, who's in trust at that point, who's got my young kids, but I still want to be able to see and have a relationship with. I'm Did still you have a car in the halfway house? I didn't, no. no. That, so they had a... Excuse me. They had transportation that would take us back and forth where we need to go. You had to pay, excuse me. You had to pay for it. Yeah. But you know, I had a little job, so I'd kick them twenty five bucks a week, and they okay. take them back and forth to work or something. And uh, the job paid really well, so I had money in my pocket. I had not really addressed the issues that were way down underneath all these years of addiction mm-hmm. that I had I had really tried to cover up, which was was the the foundation of my addiction that had, I had tried to cover up throughout all those years of using drugs and living a destructive lifestyle and all that. So ran across a guy with some heroin and knew where it knew I could get it. So that was my plan. I worked overnight, went to him after work, got me a little bag, knew I needed a, a rig. That's what I called it was a rig, but it was a syringe, a diabetic syringe pretty much. Went got a syringe, came back to work and was waiting on the other guy that had, had brought me the heroin and sold me the heroin to get off work and he and I were going to go hang for a couple hours, probably do some more dope. Yeah, yeah, get high, um, you know, just hang out. Birds of a feather flock together. So that's what we did. And uh, so that day, I'm waiting for uh, I'm waiting for him. And I got me a needle at that point, had my bag of dope. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not going to wait. There's no point in waiting for him. I'm going to get high. And I had, yeah. And not sure what, I mean, Obviously, I know what was in it, but not really sure why my body reacted. It did the way it did, but stuck a needle on my arm. Next thing I know, I wake up with the door to the little car I'm using at that at, on that day 
Both car, both doors were open. Police officer to my right and a paramedic to my left. And a needle in your arm, Mister. Yeah, needle still in my arm, Mister. Sons, Mister. Sons, Mister. Sons. You know, just kind of had had raised their voice enough to try to wake me up. One of them had his knuckles up and down on my sternum, trying to get me just to reply. Yeah, something. And they had hit me with Narcan and. The call that I later found out why they were there was because it was a deceased individual, deceased white male, in the driver's seat of an SUV. I was the I was the deceased male. Yeah, that was me. The paramedics had gotten there first and realized when they opened the door, and I didn't have a pulse that there was a needle in my arm. And said, "Okay." And they didn't pull the needle out, or they did pull the needle out. They eventually pulled. Yeah, they they did, but their I think their big concern was getting that out and getting Narcan in. Yeah, that was the main thing. So Narcan goes into the needle too, right? It does. Yeah, and you can basically just stick it to your skin, and it'll it'll penetrate your skin, and it, it reacts instantly. Is how it works. Now they have some you can use, you know, in your breathe. yeah, you can breathe it in your nose, anything like that. Just however you can use it to get it quick. So where'd you go from that? That you're they, when they found you, and you got. A cop and a paramedic, what happens next? Yeah, woke me up. Um, next thing I know, I get still, still in my arm. <laughs> click, click. I'm like, well, this isn't good. I'd had some a uh, little bit of dope left in the in the, the cup holder, a couple of pills, catching a charge. And oddly enough, uh, out of the times I had been arrested throughout my life, I was always able to satisfy the courts just enough where it wasn't a felony or I didn't have to do any time. You know, which how many times did you get arrested? Six times, six times. Yeah. And so it, it, it's weird how it worked out, but I'm grateful for it now because what I'm what I'm doing, if you have a, a history of that or convictions, especially felony convictions, you, you're you not able to do what I'm doing for sure. And it's really hard to get a job. You can't vote, can't own a, own a gun. It, there's a lot of different things you can't do with that are the penalty. You can't get insured to fly. Exactly. Yeah. If you can fly at all, you can't get insured, you know. So, so did you go to jail? I went to jail. Yeah, um, I was kind of in and out of, of of consciousness. Don't remember the ride of the jail. I remember waking up in a really small room with a drain in the floor, and some guy passed out in the corner. And I was like, "Okay, this is no good. I'm in the drunk tank. What do I do? How do I get out of here?" So I knew at that point I had been running pretty hard for a while. Um, you know, the heroin, the the just the lifestyle in general had taken a toll on me. I probably weighed 140 pounds, um, no job, you know, criminal charges hanging over my head a mile long. I made everybody mad, including, you know, my ex-wife that had to have my kids at that point. Her mom, nobody would have touched me. Even my, even my own mom said, can't help you. Well, I, I can tell you from being on the other side of this, it's not that they didn't want to help you, but they they know they they don't have the power to help you yeah. uh, unless you want to help yourself. You're working with the drugs. You're not working with the guy. And the, the trick to all that is they didn't know that setting those boundaries are what led to me getting sober because that that was helping me. Yeah, that would that helped that saved my life Absolutely. because I had nowhere to turn. And I, a, a guy that had led a small group at the halfway house I was at when this happened had talked about the the foundry out in Bessemer and he had been through the same kind of same story as mine, you know, went there several years prior, gotten sober. And I noticed he had this weird glow, like he enjoyed what he was doing. It didn't have anything to do with money. It didn't have anything to do with all these different labels that tradition in the world says, Hey, you got to do this to be happy, to be, to be at peace, to be successful. But he had a glow. And I was like, 
what is this? I was curious about it. I didn't know I wanted it yet. I didn't, I, I definitely didn't know what it would take to get that, but I knew it intrigued me. You're changing lives. He is. Yeah. And I call him. Hey, he still is today. He still is today. Yep. Yep. He's the guy that, that I would call if I knew some, if I run across somebody, Hey, he needs help. What, what, where, where can he go? What can you do? He can make a phone call and make it happen. Yeah. That's his, that's his thing. That's his thing. He's good at it. He he's incredible. It. At it. Yeah. He, he feels good about it because he's doing good work. Absolutely. He's doing the work of the Lord. Yeah. So from that, from that jail sentence, did you go to the foundry? I did. Yeah. So um, there was a couple of felonies hanging over my head and I'm just burnt out at this point. I knew something had to change. I didn't know what it was, but I was, I knew I had tried every way. You get close to the bottom? Yeah, I was, I was, that was the bottom for me. I remember, you know, I was able to, I had about 300 bucks left from my paycheck that was owed to me on Friday. And when I came, the day I came to in the, in the jail in St. Clair County, just happened to be a Friday. It was like $300 and change that went in a, a little checking account I had to have to get direct deposit from where I was working. So I called a bondsman got cash and no, I don't have cash, but I got a debit card. You can have it. Just get me out of here. So he come, got me, took me to a Burger King on the corner of the interstate in St. Clair County. I said, all right, call me in a week. I'm like, okay, I don't, I'll call you. I just wanted to get away from where I was and need me a cigarette. You know, that was my thought. And I get out of his car and walk to the front steps of Burger King, a little bag on my back and about four or five cigarettes and a pack of cigarettes. That was all I had. No idea where to go. No clue what was going to happen. And I, that's when no it, cell phone. No nothing. No. And and that's when the thought hit me, because my my brain immediately went to what can I do to use? How can I get money? How can I successfully do this? I'm thinking about my kids who are long gone at this point. I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about how am I going to pay for this? What, what is all this? What are all these pieces that I trained my mind to focus on? What does all that look like? And I realized I checked every box in, in, in that thought in my mind of how can I successfully do this and still be able to continue? And there was no way. Yeah, there, there, there's never a way. For there, that. There's not. There, there, there's not. And that's the trick. Did you don't realize that until you're at, you know, some folks call it rock bottom until that you have that paradigm shift of, OK, I don't know what anything else looks like, but I know I can't blame anybody else. I know what I've been doing isn't working and I've got to do something different. Yeah, exactly. And that was just, that was the aha moment for me. It wasn't a, a Damascus road experience. It was something has to change. Yeah. And so that's when I called, I called Tim. So Tim is the guy that was at the halfway house doing the Small group meetings. Yeah, who's the one doing the small group meetings? I called Tim. I said, "Hey, man, uh, I know you got a little a little halfway house. What do you think about me? I need help. You know, I crashed out of where I was. I, what do you think about me coming to your halfway house, getting me a little job, and trying to get some sobriety?" And he said, "Well, he said, no, we we, we take people with a little more sobriety than you got. If you come in with a couple of days sobriety and have a, you come in here relapse, you're gonna take half the house with you." They're going to go out and relapse. He said he knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah. He's been in the game long enough. He said, you need somewhere a little bit longer term that where you can live and really grow into whatever you're trying to do. So that's when the foundry came into play. He took me, came, picked me up, let me spend the night with a guy that was one of the most unique people I'd ever met. A good man named Brian. Brian recovered. Uh, uh, yeah. Addict. Okay. Recovered, yeah. 
he'd just recently come back from uh, meeting the the man that had killed his brother. Went oh, to, you told went me the story. Went to meet him in prison. And said, "Hey, man, I forgive you." Yeah, he ministered to him. You know, just really went on the other side of it. People like that stick out in your mind. And Brian was one of those guys. He said, "Hey, I've been there, done that. You know, get some rest, and I'll take you to the foundry in the morning." So I walk in the foundry with the clothes on my back, a couple of, you know, a couple of pair of underwear and a pair of shoes that were thrown on the front porch of my ex-wife's house because I couldn't come in. She said, come by and get your crap, which, like I said, was a pair of shoes and a couple of T-shirts and some underwear. Go to the foundry. And I'm like, all right, what is this? What is happening? What now? in the world is this? And there's these people that that turns out that are some of my best friends in the world today that I see that work there that are living this this life that I would come to see, but they all had this glow that I saw in Tim and Brian. I'm like, what is it about these guys? They don't care about the car. They don't care about money. They're just in a good place all the time, no matter what's going on around them. They have this weird peace. And that was the first real impact for me was these guys have something I want. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to get it. You saw it first in Tim. Yeah. You didn't know. And then you get there and you see it in a few folks. Yeah. Yeah. And that told me, that spoke to me a little bit like, these guys have some long-term sobriety and they're tackling life yeah. on life's terms. You know, it's like they can handle it no matter what, no matter what comes their way and they don't have to get high. So let's pitch the foundry just for a second. Cause I'm a fan. Um, yeah. And I've got more than one client that has been there. The foundry is a long-term rehab facility. How long-term is it? It's a year long. So when I was there, it's a year long. They recently restructured it. And the cool thing is they have the ability to do that because you live there. It's not an outpatient. It's an inpatient. When you check in day one, you live there. Eat, sleep, work, breathe, class, counseling, everything. And it's six months. Now it's six months. And then they have a lot of aftercare, um, you know, boxes you have to check to be eligible for it, ways you have to stay connected. When you went, it was one year. When I went, it was a year. All the clients I had was one year. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but it works. It, it, it I mean, I'm talking, works. we got the results right in front of me. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you joined the foundry and you got two little kids still out with your ex-wife, who, by the way, is still doing drugs, right? You graduate, you do a year there and you graduated or whatever, you completed, whatever it's called, right? Is that what it's called? You yeah, completed? you graduated completely. Yes. What did you do when you, when you finished it? So at that point, I'm, I'm pretty close for I had gotten to be really close with some of the guys in the program that, that were on staff. Um, some of the guys had been sober six, eight, ten years, something like that, because they were the ones that I wanted to pattern my life around. Yeah, they were good mentors. They, were, they really were, because when you go to treatment, you have the people that are ready and the people that aren't. There's no in between. And I just happened to be one of the lucky ones that was ready. Yeah. I didn't know I was ready, mm-hmm. but I knew I was ready for something to change. And so those guys are serious about it. I was up early every day. I did what they told me to do, yeah. nothing more. And that's that's all you have to do in places like that. And I started surrounding myself with people who I wanted to be like. Yeah. Well, remember before I, before we started the podcast, we were uh, Bruce Jr. was setting everything up. And we talked about hope, right? So as an addict, if you have a mentor that has been there and done that, you can look at that person and go, hey, Tim, or one of these other folks at the foundry, he was where I'm at right now. And now he's completely clean. He's living his life. He's got a glow about him. The word you use is he's got this glow. And I want that. And it can be done. I mean, I can. I, there's light at the end of this tunnel because that dude did it. All, in fact, all these you know folks at the foundry that you know, were your mentors, they did it. So what they gave you, I think, 
is hope that you can get to a place where you can live a normal life. That's it. Yeah. That's that's the piece of the puzzle. And you'll hear it no matter when you're, if you're in a meeting, if you're in a small group, whatever it may be in the recovery circles, um, sharing our experience, strength, and hope. That's it. Because every every recovery program out there that's successful is revolved around faith, a higher power, a spiritual being, whatever that may be. For me, it was it was the Lord, it was God, and, and I'm a Christian. I believe that, and that's the foundation of my life today. And that's the way we, my wife and I, raise our kids. That's the way. Your new wife, so yeah. You're remarried now. Yep. Yeah. That the, the the trick with all that was I remember being at, at the foundry, walking to to lunch, and on countless occasions seeing my children's mom driving down the road to Bessemer to get dope. Uh, you know, right around the corner from where I'm at. That was pretty tough. Yeah. It was it was pretty tough. And Did she ever have your kids with her? Every time, yeah, yeah. for sure. And I, I knew in my head, I thought, okay, I need, I have to get out of here and get them out of that situation. I've been clean six months, seven months, eight months, maybe. I can I can make it work. But in my heart, I knew if they have a fighting chance, it depends on me staying here for me. Like finish the program. That's it, kids jobs, family, all those things are incredible motivations to start a journey to recovery. But if you don't do it for yourself, if one of those things goes away, whether it's your family or yeah, you know, your kids get taken away or the job doesn't work out, if that goes away, that's a huge open door to go use again. Yeah. Because that's why you got sober in the first place. Yeah. So if you get sober for, for peace in your heart and to to right your wrongs, make amends, work through these this process and live a, a life successfully helping other people, you tend to have more longer term sobriety. Oh, yeah. And so seeing her come and go and all that, I knew I need to do something. I can't leave. So I stayed put. Um, fast forward a couple of years. She's I'm still working at the foundry. I, yeah. So you graduated and then you stayed on as staff. Yep. Stayed on as staff, lived there. For how many years? Uh, so I was on staff for almost eight years. Eight. I lived there for about two years. And uh, just saved up some money to get me a little apartment, uh, got me a little car, a little beater of a forerunner that did the trick, nothing yeah. more. But that's what I needed. I didn't need something nice. Yeah. I needed to work for something and, to, and take care of it. And yeah, you did. Exactly. So I did that and um, got me a little apartment um, over over in Hoover, tried to create a life for my, my kids to come and, you know, I could get a hold of them, get them over there. And she was still kind of struggling with, with a lot of different things. It wasn't just the healthiest situation for me to remain in. So I chose to get a divorce. Um, a couple of tough situations on, on her end just made it possible for me to get custody of the kids. Kind of. Look, you got to tell the story quickly. But so one day you see her, you're in Bessemer. I think I've got that right. Yeah. I, I'm just saying this from the story you told me in the airplane, but you're in Bessemer and you drive by and you see your Jeep, which your ex-wife is driving. And it's got your babies in the back seat, and it's a drug house. And by the way, Steve told me he can he can he can spot a drug addict in a drug house at the drop of a hat right now. Uh, and you always will be because that you know, that was your world. Yeah. So he sees his car, his babies in the back seat, and no ex-wife, but you knew where she was. So what did you do? I walked up to the house, the drug house, the drug house, and in a very dangerous part of town. And all I knew is I wanted my kids, and uh, so. Knocked on the door, very hastily said, give me the kids. Give me the, I'm taking the kids. Or you don't, you don't have an option or we're going to have problems. I'm calling the police. Yeah. 
And if that doesn't work out, we'll, we'll handle that. We'll handle whatever's next. I'm taking my kids from you right now. They don't deserve to be in this situation anymore. That so was, you've been sober now for how long? For about four years. Four years. Yeah, we're going on four years. What, what did the ex-wife say? This is saying, by the way. Yeah, she she reluctantly agreed. She said, "Whatever." She chose she chose drugs over her kids for sure. Yeah, yeah. she did. And, and I'm not I'm not hating on her. Most drug addicts do exactly the same. Yeah, thing. I did. You might have. I did that. Yeah, for a long time. For yeah. a long time, because yeah. that was just that's the nature of how, of the disease. That's the nature of how it works. That's that's right. The choices drugs I was. First. Yeah, I chose drugs over anything. My my children included. Yeah. And she did the same thing. That's where she was. Again. People ask me, what would you change? And oddly enough, I wouldn't change anything because the journey I had to go on to get to where I'm at today to do like you and I are talking about flying and do what I do and have the family and the life I have today. If I didn't go through what I went through, I may not have that. And it's totally worth it. And she hadn't started her journey yet. When I saw her at that house with my kids, she hadn't been down that journey yet. Yeah. So I knew the best thing for me to do, that was my time. Out of all those those days, I'd seen them driving back and forth in Bessemer, going to get drugs while I'm walking to eat a hot dog and French fries at a rehab. I knew, okay, this is my time. All that, it's, it's game time. It's game time, yeah. yeah. Well, so today, is, is the ex still doing drugs, you think? Yeah, I think she, she may still be struggling. I'm really not sure. Um, we hope not, but I think yeah, maybe. I, I really hope she's not because – you know, like every drug addict, man, there's there's a, an amazing heart underneath there. Oh, yeah. There really it's is. It's not the person. It's the drug. It's not. It's the lifestyle that, that you're choosing. You I've, had many, I've had many parents call me and say, hey, Dr. Bright, can you coach my child? And I go, well, you know, how old's your child? 19. They're at the University of wherever, and we think they're doing drugs. Well, what did you do? For, what what did you do to them for the first nineteen years that you're getting ready to get me trying to get me to fix overnight? And I just tell them I don't I, I don't coach drugs. I mean I, you can't because you know this. If if you're doing drugs, I'm coaching heroin. I'm not coaching Steve. Yeah. So my my deal has always been, you get cleaned up. I'll coach you. In fact, I'll coach you during rehab if you're clean during the rehab. I'll come to the rehab facility and I'll coach you there. We'll do it by phone. And I'll stay in touch with you. Once you get out, we'll go full, you know, full on coaching. But you can't coach drugs. That's so drugs. that's right, exactly. <laughs> and I hope that your ex is has cleaned her act up and has got healthy and gotten, you know, gotten better. But today, where are the children? So the children are with me. Um, I went to an attorney. It was kind of an emergency situation where, oddly enough, the state granted me custody, a temporary custody, until we can sort out a court date. And I was single dad at that point, mm -hmm. which was a whole other journey in itself oh, sure. yeah, to yeah, navigate, you, you know. Yeah. So I did that um, for a little bit. Yeah. So um, got the kids. That was late 2014, 20, 2015. I'm a, you know, single dad working, still working at the foundry. Got a, a job at a, a, a gas station, kind of, you know, on the weekends or on the holidays to kind of help make ends meet and had help any way I could get it. You know, my, my family's still up in Florence, so that's a, a two-hour drive that they can't make on a daily basis to help me. So I'm kind of having to wing it. You know, my, my ex-wife's family's out in Trustful, and they're still kind of sorting through everything that they had been told that was going on with me and all the, the bad that we had done together. It's pretty much the, the, the story that was told to them was, hey, that's him. Like, you go see him about it. You know, it's his fault. It ain't my fault. Yeah. Which I get again, like sure. I, it, it's not my place to say 
to, to go at them because today we have an incredible, incredible relationship. They're, they're amazing people. Her family. Her family. Yeah. We still have a good relationship to this day. They're amazing with my kids. They're, they, they care about myself and, and my current wife. Like we're family because. So you're remarried for how many years now? So I get, I get remarried. I, I meet my current wife in 2015 and. I knew I needed to take some time that, you know, relationships are a huge piece of recovery yeah. and you got to do them right. You got to do them right. There's only one, only one way to do them. You got to do them right in recovery or not. I'm, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah we, but yeah. So, we've all, all been through that. Yeah. So we, we date for about a year and a half, end up getting married um, in 2018, okay. uh, March, 2018. We get married and uh, we live in Helena. I've got another got, little small city outside yeah, of Birmingham. Small city outside of Birmingham. All our kids go to school right there in the, the neighborhood. How many are all now? How many y'all got? We have four. We don't have any together, and we're going to keep it that way. But okay, we have, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> four, four, yeah, four is a house full. Yeah, so yeah. we got four amazing kids. Um, she she had one from a previous marriage, and uh, I, I ended up I have three. So we got four total, and we're man, it's we're doing live. What's her yeah? What's her ages? So I've got seven. Uh, our, our youngest little girl, seven, uh, 11, my stepdaughter's 11 and then 13, those three are girls. And then the boy is 14. Oh yeah. Yeah. Y'all, y'all are wide open. Cause I mean, <laughs> our kids are 21, 23 and 31. So we're, we're a little ahead of you on that, but I can remember those, there's a lot of taxi parenting going on and yeah. ball and dance and gymnastics and awesome. all that, but it's all good there. It is. Right? It's, all, it's all good. So I want to summarize a little bit of, Anyone that's listening that has a child uh, or yourself, but really specifically, if you've got a child that you think is going down this road that Steve went, you know, a little bit of tough love is the way to go. Because you can see in the beginning, uh, and I I don't fault your mother at all. I've I've got kids and I love them. I want to help them. And that's what your mother was trying to do. Every one of those decisions she made, by the way, she made them by herself because your father passed. So she was trying to do the right thing. But sometimes when we try to do the right thing and we give too much to these to these youngsters, they don't know what to do with it. And it ends up going down a wrong road. But today, the end result is we got a healthy man, a healthy relationship, beautiful children. And now you're off and running on a potential new career. You're at the very beginning of this flying career. But I have no doubt this is going to go down the road exactly like you want to. I'm certainly here to help you. And everybody I know is here to help you. Uh, all you got to do is get some hours and you're going to get hired on at some you know, some good corporate gig or airlines that you want. I think that's your aspirations. Is that correct? Yeah, eventually that's where I'd like to go there. Uh, you know, a, a big fractional company like like NetJets, FlexJet, maybe someone like that. Airlines are are quickly becoming the the, the only place for me, though. The, the more I get to know people that have done this long enough and been been in the, the in this. Well, done that you're talking about flying. Yeah, flying. Yeah, I've been in the aviation circles as long as I have. Airlines seems like the the best route to go, you know. And and oddly enough, I'm I'm like you said, I'm early in it. And when I finished school, I had this big long list of people. I'm on I'm on call them. I'm gonna text them. I said, hey, call me when you're done. Call me when you're done. You said the same thing. Let me know when you're done. That was all. You, cool. Let me know when you're done. When yeah. I told you I was leaving Atlantic, that short, that sweet. Called all these folks. Hey, I'm I'm good. I'm ready. I'm a low time guy. I'm, yeah, well, I'm, the, I'm the new guy. Yeah. And they don't even really know my my story because I definitely don't lead with a lot of the choices I make throughout my life. I'm just ready to go. I'm going to work hard as I can and be the best I can be at what I do. Yeah. And of all the people, 
I get a text after texting Bruce Bright on a Wednesday afternoon. Hey, I finished my commercial multi check ride. Give me a shout if you're going flying. Great. 0700 Saturday. Did that work out for you? Blew my mind. Blew my mind. And it's been nonstop ever since. And mm-hmm. like this, it, it, it was wild because, you know, people in your life and relationships are, are big for me. They are for anybody. But this this rough, tough Marine that's nonstop all the time, always doing, always going like, hey, come on, let's go. Come on. Yeah. Like, no, what are you talking about? No excuses. Let's go. Come on. Jump in. Let's learn. Time to get better. Time to get better. And if you have people like that pushing you um, and, and people in your life willing to set boundaries for you, whether you're in addiction, in treatment or early in recovery, you have to surround yourself with people like that, that constantly make you better, that don't put up with excuses, that won't love you to death, that won't. Wait, 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 wait. I love you to death. No, I, I, but, but I mean, you, you definitely I'm not just, soft. No, exactly. Remember, let's just say we'll, we'll, we'll get to the second pretty quickly, but remember we go flying, he'd flown with maybe 10 times or something like that. And I think we're in a barren little twin engine. It's just me and him. So what I do is if I've got somebody in the back seat, I fly it. They're, they're paying for it. If it's empty, Steve flies it. So we come back into Birmingham and he had a terrible wing. <laughs> it was, in fact, the word I used was ridiculous. Yeah. So well, the way you know, I said, "All right, look, we're going to go again." But I don't, I don't ever want to see those ridiculous landings. And it was because he was nervous, and I gave him some tips about how to calm down and how not to be nervous. But it's very typical of the young pilots, just like any any other profession when you're when you're new at it. And I think you were trying to impress me with it. The fact of the matter is, you've already impressed me. I mean, it, right now, the only thing you need in an airplane is time. That's the key. Fly, fly, fly. You'll get better with time. It's monkey skills, and you've got everything else you need. And I'm going to do everything I can to help you get there. And I'm well connected, so I know yeah. I know lots of folks in the aviation industry. And you're a guy that I would like to have in front left seat. So we'll get you there as soon as we can. Well, Steve, I want to tell you. Um, first off, I do want to say this. I'll go back to this one little story you told about being stoned out of your mind, but you were trying to take bottled water to folks that had lost things in the storm, right? The, the tornado yeah. and the storm. That says something about your character. Yeah. So although you were screwed up as Hogan's goat as a drug addict, you still got a good heart. Remember, the drugs are not the person. And every every drug addict I deal with, that has nothing to do with their character, their personality. In fact, I, th- there was a young lady that used to work for me, and she, pa- she passed away. She actually got high in the bathtub and fell forward and drowned. She was by herself. She, not on drugs, shirt off her back. I mean, sweetest lady, smart. I mean, academically, two master's degrees, unbelievably smart, kind as they come. Put drugs in her, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. She's the biggest bitch you've ever met. Um, And the reason was she was trying to find the next fix, which I didn't know at the time. I quickly learned that. But when you're working with a drug addict, it's not their character. It's the drug. If they're doing the drugs, you're working with the drugs. You're, you're, You're dealing with drugs. It's not the person. As soon as you get that cleaned away, we get Steve Sons. We get the real Steve, right? And I saw this in Atlantic. You know, you've always been my go-to guy. I have your personal cell phone. And instead of calling the desk, I would call Steve on his personal cell phone and go, hey, can you make this happen for me? There'd be five guys in Atlantic. This place working. And see, I'll take care of it. And the reason I did that is because I trusted Steve. I didn't necessarily trust these other guys, um, and but I knew Steve would make it happen. And you weren't even at work. You'd be at home and you would take care of it for me. So that's how much I admired you at Atlantic. When you told me you wanted to fly, I kind of giggled inside because I told you I've been, I've heard that a thousand times, but you actually did it. I wasn't one day, I went, where's Steve? 
uh, he quit. He's he's a best friend fly. He's, he's learned how to fly. Uh, and so you did that. And so I am here uh, in full support of you. We're going to get you a flying job. All we need is some time. We just got to get you some hours. Guys, um, if you heard the story, the way I heard it is it went down a very rough road. And Steve's here with us today. He's alive. He's clean. And he's doing great things in Birmingham, Alabama. And he's going to continue to do great things. So if you've got somebody in your family that's dealing with this, listen to this story. Please contact Steve or myself. It'll be in the show notes how to get a hold of us. You can always call me and I can connect you. Uh, Steve's a great mentor to anybody out there dealing with it. He knows folks and he can put you in touch with the people to help you get clean and get better. He's well-connected in that world. And I just want to tell you, Steve, I, I so much appreciate you coming on. You're a good dude. I love you. And uh, I want what's best for you and your family. And I'm I'm going to make sure I do everything I can to help you. I appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Sir. Love you, dude. Thanks. Thanks.